Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, considering that of the two of us, you are uh, without a doubt the superhero of the podcast, I have a question for you. <laughs> wait, wait, are you the villain of the podcast? I'm more kind of like the unimportant spectator. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> As, but, well, even if I was an important spectator, it pales in comparison to your glorious oh, race. ridiculous. Okay. <laughs> so, my question for you is this. Given your stature of a superhero, how yes. do you feel when people ineptly try to impersonate you in the battlefield? Uh, unfortunately, this is a, uh, a trial like, that I have to go through a lot you, in life. <laughs> do you take it personally? Do you feel it's your responsibility to correct? They do say imitation is the highest form of flattery, so I try to remind myself of that in these in these dark times. But uh, I also don't want these people to get hurt. <laughs> and just double checking, your policy is no guns as well. Yes. Okay. Generally speaking. Good. Good. <laughs> Glad to hear it. <laughs> yeah, anyway, that's a lead in to part two of this trilogy, this Dark Knight trilogy we're doing, entitled The Dark Knight. We're on the big one. Uh, This is the one that I think thrust... I mean, Batman Begins was a really good movie, and I remember it being popular when it came out, but this one was something else. This was a cultural phenomenon. And obviously there's so many reasons for that. I think the biggest reason is Heath Ledger. Yes. Of all of the things, I mean, first posthumous... Oscar, or at least first posthumous supporting actor Oscar, I don't know for sure. There's maybe people who won other stuff, like costume or whatever after, but he won the first. I mean, because this movie came out in 2008, so it was like kind of at the beginning of social media and at the beginning of... The financial meltdown. The financial meltdown and thinking about things on a massive scale like mental health and all of that, and Heath Ledger in... The prime of his career, basically having the role of a lifetime and one of the greatest performances in movie history, I would say. Yeah, and then... (laughs) And then tragedy and sadness. And so there was a weird kind of non-demarcation between the Joker and Heath Ledger in the real world you I've know heard, i've heard that might might have been part of the problem probably that, yeah, well, I mean, was, like trying to get into that mentality would not be an easy feat well in the joker i think i mean and we'll get into this later the joker is kind of a unique cultural artifact in our villainy in our in our history of story villainy he's got a kind of niche place i think because of his philosophy and worldview you know, and yeah, <laughs> I've always thought that really good art, well, really good stories, I'll say, demands very compelling villains. Because mm-hmm. if you don't have a compelling bad guy, how can you really have a compelling good guy? I, I agree. So that was the big thing. But this this movie, because it came out, it, it came out the same the summer of two thousand eight, which would have been the same year. I can't remember exactly when Iron Man came out, but 
it was the beginning of the MCU and this was kind of the first crest of the modern superhero movie kind yeah. of coming out in its full splendor to theaters to the public consciousness and here we had arguably the world's most famous superhero the world's most famous supervillain in a big budget Christopher Nolan movie yes <laughs> and so there was just kind of this anticipation in the zeitgeist for this well, the movie. advertising so batman begins i think had created a very had played a big role in creating that anticipation because people really enjoyed that movie but then the trailers for this people were just watching them wherever they could and so excited to to witness an even darker version of Batman. Yeah. so do you have a uh, any memories of your anticipation and your drinking in well, this would be movie? my first uh, year at university, my first full year. So I remember everyone in the dorm was excited about it. And like, you're in a dorm, an all guys dorm, and people are just jacked up about Batman. And and at this time, like superheroes were becoming a bigger thing, Iron Man. So I think, yeah, my anticipation for it was pretty high, and I and it and it kind of blew me away when I saw it. So I think the Joker changes your whole perspective. Yeah, I agree. I think the Joker is... On the, Batman himself. Yeah. It, to me, the Joker is the most interesting villain in all of pop culture. Yeah, I, I guess I was 21. I think I underestimated it because of how much advertisement there was for it. I kind of was like, oh, whatever. Like, it's Batman. We've seen... like <laughs> We've seen... And, and I'd seen Batman Begins. It was pretty good. It was like, it's just a Batman movie. You yeah. know, I, I wasn't prepared for how deeply psychological it ended up being. Well, no, I mean, and that's kind of the thing is, I think that was so masterful about it. People went there to see a superhero movie, mm-hmm. and they came out thinking about life. Yes. Well, yeah, and, and I mean, I think probably contextually something worth thinking about when it comes to superhero movies is that Batman Begins aside, even though it wasn't to the level of The Dark Knight, to me, The Dark Knight is the first serious comic book movie. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. the first one that takes its subject matter and tries to do its best to not have a tongue-in-cheek take. It's a on realism, the, the realism yeah. that it's embracing. It's like, what if a comic book universe was a real universe? Yeah. Not, not oh, let's have fun in this fantasy place. It's like, no, let's let's work out within the laws that govern this mm-hmm. universe. What? Are we going to do with yeah, it? Yeah, let's let's take the darkest, grittiest, most visceral version of the comic book Batman and make that movie. Yes. Because prior to that, I mean, major Batman portrayals had been, you know, that Adam West goofy <laughs> onomatopoeias appearing yeah. all over the place. And then the two Tim Burton ones in the late 80s, early 90s, which were okay, I think. Michael Keaton's Batmans were okay, but there was still like a kind of a weird surrealness because it's Tim Burton to how everything looks <laughs> in Gotham. Yeah. And then I don't really remember the Val Kilmer one too much, except that I know Jim Carrey was kind of off the rails <laughs> in his Enigma Riddler. So I'll reserve judgment on that one because I don't remember it so well. But the Batman and Robin, 1997. I know we brought up Batman Begins, but the goofiness of the George Clooney, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Chris O'Donnell, Alicia Silverstone, Uma Thurman, Batman and Robin. Like, that was the nadir, I think, of the Batman franchise, that movie. Well, maybe Batman versus Superman. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I guess we've gotten different versions of that now with the, what is it, the DCEU? Yeah, But anyway, all of that is just kind of to contextualize how Batman Begins started this train for sure, but 
The Dark Knight floored me with how seriously it took its source material to make a really fucking good movie. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I'd never... I think it, yeah, floored me too. I would, I would agree with that. I'd never... Because even though it looks great, it's a really well-made movie. Obviously, Christopher Nolan is one of the, the best ever, I think, in terms of filmmaking. It was kind of, in a way, unstylized and unpolished. It was just trying to tell a really visceral story about this really messed up... I don't want to call him a psychopath. This messed up... The gratuitous nihilist, yeah, <laughs> in some sense. So seriously, there's very... Yeah. <laughs> and this reserved but hopeful downtrodden hero who uh, no good deed goes unpunished for him kind of thing you know and i i just loved how that was portrayed in this movie i i was like wow this here's how i would put it as like a review is that if you took away all of its oh this is a comic book movie-ness feel and you just like if this was like an original written movie you'd be like this is incredible yeah <laughs> you know like this is just an a it's a beautiful adaptation of a really beloved character in the most real way you could of a comic book, I think. I think what comic book readers and, let's say, Batman fans appreciated about this and why it got such rave reviews and why everyone raved about it was that it did. It took their love of something seriously. And I think, actually, we see that with the Avengers and, and with the Marvel Universe. They took it... They took those things seriously or as mm-hmm. seriously as you could and produce something that became a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. And that doesn't mean it's not without its humor. I think and not even the all, dark yeah. Knight has some humor in it, especially a little bit of uh, Morgan Freeman's kind of wryness. Yeah. The back <laughs> and forth between the two of them. Yeah. But it was, it's kind of a less cheesy humor, I guess. And uh, the MCU, when it's operating on its, the best cylinders, I think there's a non cheesiness to the jokes as well, you know? Yeah. So, and I would say, like, this, this, The Dark Knight has to be one of the first movies that would come to mind if you ask about modern classics. Yes. Like, what are the classic movies it of the last 20? It has come 20... to mind when we've asked people that. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, what, are the, what are the top 10 best movies of the last 20 years? I feel like it has to make most a lot of people's lists. So. Yeah, and it's, and it's not just a, you know, movie buffs list. This, mm-hmm. is a, this, is, this thing has penetrated into the psyche of our culture. Mm-hmm. So let us, we're going to start with the Joker because I think he is the most fascinating part of this movie and really why it's, it kind of got meta with Heath Ledger, <laughs> but why it's so impactful is that I'll just contextualize with the very first scene of the movie where it starts with, that's that great bank robbing scene and he, but he ends up getting all of his cronies to kill each other and he makes away with all the money. And my first thought on that, that I wanted to bring up with you was, okay, So we're getting this introduction of this guy who's just causing chaos. And he's causing chaos because he has a scenario where nobody nobody knows who the other person is. So there's like a distance or a weird anomie of each other. Uh, You would think maybe in a bank robbery, you'd want to know who you're doing it with. Yeah. So maybe he looks for dumbasses, first of all. But also how that chaos of who you can't trust, well, I guess it causes, the the non-trust causes the chaos, which makes everybody second guess everything. And that kind of seemed to be what the Joker was a lot of the time just going for. You know, like he was just going for anarchistic chaos because he knew how people would respond in those situations. So he knew how to be a step ahead of everybody so that he could control everything. So he came out on top. And I loved how they showed that in the very first scene of the movie. Yeah, I think 
my thing about the Joker is everyone's like, oh, he's just random. He's not random. He uses chaos and, and the randomness that people perceive as randomness to develop his long-term strategy. He's always got a plan. Like you, you can't produce the kind of choices, mm-hmm. let's say, that he produces throughout this movie unless you were meticulously planning. Yeah. But you then come across as random. It's an interesting strategy that's not just used by villains, but can be used by people in general, is being underestimated. Like, he's just a clown, they say, right? Or he's, you know, he wears makeup. So he's consistently underestimated and therefore able to achieve so much more through simply knowing that he knows what's going on mm-hmm. and nobody else does. Well, do you remember uh, you, what you just said reminded me of when I brought up, I think it was in one of the South Park episodes, the goofball facade? Yes. Where you underestimate the goofball. He's the shadow side of that. He's in the some insane sense. facade, yeah, right? Like he's if the he's, madness facade. Yeah. Well, you're right. I guess the facade would be more like, I don't really understand your absurdity, so I'm going to discount your competence or, or your rationality yeah right because like yeah a lot of people discount his like they think he's insane and they'll say that you're insane mm-hmm. he's not insane because yeah. insane people cannot act in that way yeah right they're they're not able to coherently navigate reality that's their problem he has no problem navigating reality i think what's so scary the thing that's terrifying about the joker is also what makes him so fascinating is that his motivation is actually so insidious that most people don't actually want to address it. Yeah, people or 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 even believe it's real. <laughs> yeah, I guess what I'm thinking is that there's maybe like a psychological defense mechanism to just, as it were, I don't want to go there kind of thing with the Joker. Because the Joker has a motivation that is ultimately like at the lowest, the darkest part of the human soul is what he's going for. And there's a great contrast between how gleeful and silly he is while he's doing that. Because I think he's, and I'll even reference it here because he's got a line, what what doesn't kill you makes you stranger, which is a really fun riff on Nietzsche's line, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Yes, yes. And I think that this is, well, I don't, I don't know for sure. If it's intentional, I think it's a, it's a great inside philosophy joke because Nietzsche is one of the first philosophers to really articulate what nihilism is. I mean, there was obviously a lot of the kind of Russian writers of the 19th century that did that too, but Nietzsche kind of talked about it more specifically. And Nietzsche himself made the distinction between active and passive nihilism, which is a nihilism is the belief that there is no meaning and nothing matters. And Nietzsche uh, <laughs> talked about active nihilism or it's like bra- embracing that and trying to do something good with it. And I think the Joker is trying, is a character who's really activating the passive nihilism, not passive as in you don't do anything, but passive nihilism is that once you realize that there is no meaning, you want to destroy instead of create like a, a good synonym. As far as my understanding of the two is, is active nihilism is creation and passive nihilism is destruction. And the, kind of gratuitous nihilism that I mentioned earlier that the Joker seems to portray in all of Batman, but really fucking amazing by Heath Ledger in this movie is that he's, he's a villain because of something we don't understand because his, his motivations to me are unique in our cultural milieu of our stories because there aren't a lot of passionate nihilists in pop culture. Like a lot of the villains who appear that I think of are like are, are ideological 
in some sense. Now you could maybe split the hair of uh, the Joker has a nihilistic ideology, right. yeah. <laughs> sure. But, but I think I mean, it's, nihilism as an ideology isn't very prevalent. It right? would be hard to figure out what would motivate a mass of people with that, other than pure destruction of being, perhaps anarchy, maybe. Yeah, yeah. anarchy. Said, and and I mean, well, it's part of our job, I guess. Is like. There's an element of the Joker mentality in the people who just want to destroy. Yes. For its own purpose, right? Well, it's those. Pe- it's the people who show up at the riots because mm-hmm. they want to break things. Because their idea of a good time is, you know, bashing in storefronts and burning cop cars. Yeah. That's the Joker. Yeah. And <laughs> so all of this is like a kind of a setup for what the Joker's ultimate goal is in this movie anyway. And it seems to me that the contrast between the Joker and the Batman is so narratively beautiful because I see the Joker as a nihilist. So he's, he's a at heart pessimist about human nature with a happy, gleeful face. And Batman is a optimist about human nature with a dour, (laughs) grumpy face about it. It's a great comparison. And so it's art, like you yeah, said. Yeah, it that. is art. The Joker laughing towards the end of things is kind of beautiful in a piece of art like this. And so what he's doing, and, and Batman nails it on the head at his line. He's like, you just want to show that everyone's as ugly as you are. And that really is the Joker's motivation in this movie is that because of his predictive power of like, okay, well, I know how everyone's going to act. And there's a lot of examples of other movies where he's just easily predicting what everyone around him is going to do because he knows what human beings are like. His kind of existential, and we might even say metaphysical goal, as I, I would say in quotations, metaphysical, is that he really really wants to demonstrate to people that they are not nearly as good as they think they are and in fact much worse you than get what baseline. You, you get what you deserve yeah you get what you deserve and so like basically everything he does like if you look a lot of his behavior like he says hey if you don't kill this reese guy because he knows reese knows who's batman is i'm pretty sure that's what happens uh, i realize we didn't do a plot rundown but it's batman whatever <laughs> yeah everyone's seen it <laughs> if you haven't seen batman Pause this, go watch it. And then come back. <laughs> and then come back. Yeah. But I think I'm pretty sure the reason is he wants Reese to die is because Reese is going to reveal who Batman is. And he doesn't want that because he actually has a respect for Batman in a really fucked up way that no one else in Gotham can. Well, and because he's 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 really into art. He 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 likes the idea. Like he's all about the show and the spectacle. Mm-hmm. And part of who he he says, "You need me, and I need you." Yeah, right. Yeah, he he understands that kind of dynamism and tension that exists between the two of them, because Batman gives Gotham hope, and the, the, the Joker is so. I can't even think of the right superlative. Like he's messed up, doesn't do it. The Joker is so hellbent. He's hellbent on proving that the worst part of human nature is actually the totality of human nature. You are no better than your worst moment, and that's actually what you are. Yeah. That he can only actually get the worst out of people if they think that they can be better than their worst. Right, because it's not going to be devastating <laughs> yeah. to them if they yeah. agree with him. And he wants that devastation. He wants that moment of realization where they're like, oh, I was wrong about everything. Uh, yeah, because you... But why you, does he want that, do you think? Like, that's what I can't understand. Does he just get some kind of Schoenfreude out of it? Or, like, is he... I guess it kind of relates to the story that Alfred 
tells Bruce about the bandit in Burma, the men who just want to see the world burn. And I mean, there's probably a lot more in the backstory of the Joker character in general from the comics that <laughs> we didn't read. <laughs> we right. don't know yes. much about it. Yeah. Uh, and you get it a little bit actually in the newer Joker movie that we saw together with Joaquin Phoenix, who, if I'm going to put it in this like Jordan Peterson psychological terms, he just hates being so much, and he hates his own being. Yeah, so he, much. He, yeah. he's a it's a it's a nihilism married with a hatred, I guess you would say, which leads to the dark side. Yeah, <laughs> where it's not enough to just expire, but the hatred he feels for the world. I think runs so deep that he needs to destroy others while he destroys himself, you know? Cause even that scene, okay. Uh, I guess we'll just, we'll talk about the, the weird climax now. And it's hard to, the Joker has every single moment of this movie. The Joker got what he wanted, right? Even the scene where Batman kind of, it looks like Batman and Gordon work together to trick him into capturing him. He wanted to get captured. Yeah. <laughs> right. So every single domino of his plan fell as he planned it until the very end of the movie, because at the very end of the movie, he's where, wrong about people. where he's wrong about people. And you'll notice this. He was more distracted or annoyed that nobody blew the other ship up more than he was at Batman almost killing him yeah, or, or letting him die. Like he's just laughing when it's his death because he doesn't, I think it's that hatred of his own being. But he also knows that Batman's never going to kill him. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, well, maybe I think he understands Bat like as a villain, I think he understands Batman better than Batman understands himself in a lot of ways. Like the interesting thing is this facade of insanity is masking genius. Mm -hmm. But do you remember in the movie, there's like a half second or maybe a full second of the Joker looking surprised yes. or miffed yes. when the boats aren't blown up, when the convicts and the people don't blow the other oh, boat up. Oh, for sure, yeah. And that's the moment. Well, to me, that's, that's the moment. That's when he's been thwarted. Very weirdly, that's the moment Batman won. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Batman realizes that because he won on the existential level mm -hmm. not on the end of it like he won the war well batman won like all these little battles too yes. along the way like more practical battles of like saving this person's life not killing this person protecting this person like he he's his his little like he protects all the people in the buildings yes. that the joker has set up like the joker has planned everything out to it he except the joker was wrong that the lowest form of human nature is its totality Right. And like, that's, that's such an unbelievably hopeful message. That's what I love about this movie is that it's one of the darkest, grittiest movies with an unbelievably hopeful message. Yeah. It's like, Hey, wait, maybe. And, and honestly, it glorifies the heroism of those people on the boat more than it does Batman. I know, which is <laughs> such a cool part of it because throughout the whole movie, that's the thing that even if he can't articulate, I think Batman is fighting for. Do you know what yeah, I mean? He wants people to rise up and be better themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he, he sees it in Dent. He sees it in himself. He sees it in Alfred. He sees it even in potentially parts of the Joker. And the more I thought about it this time, the more it kind of blew me away, those archetypes. And so anyway, here is actually an example of something that happens in the movie that supports what you brought up earlier. So I wanted you to like have that as fodder for potentially elaborating a bit is that this is a line he says to Batman... I think it's in the jail cell when Batman is <laughs> interrogating yeah, the Joker yeah, with yeah. his fists. 
Don't talk like you are one of them. You are not. These civilized people will eat each other. So he's both saying that him and Batman are of a different type. And there's like an almost weird um, camaraderie, camaraderie yeah. that he sees in Batman and that he wants to be right in his pessimism. And then married that with a line, he says, if you hurt soldiers or gangsters, no one bats an eye, but one little mayor. So that annoyance with that kind of hypocrisy about human society, I think those are like the little clues that we get that the Joker is actually, there's a weird animus that animates him to the dark side of human nature and to focus on that and to go like kind of full Thanatos yeah. <laughs> death impulse on it, but bring as many people as he can with him because he's proved right about people. And I think that's what the Joker wants to be. Is be proved he right. He wants to be proved right about human nature and its ugliness. And because the- that will, ex- in some way, if it's just natural, mm-hmm. that will excuse his own ugliness. Uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And that's the a good point. That- I mean, it's interesting. One of the mo- most fascinating parts about this particular movie is how he's always talking about how he's, how he got his face. And he's like, do you know how I got these scars? <laughs> yeah. Right. And he always has a different story. Every time he tells a different story. But I think if you think about it from a psychological perspective on like the kind of psychic damage that would happen if someone got scars like that and didn't mm-hmm. give them to themselves, what would that do to a person? And and the truth of the matter is he keeps indicating that something happened to give him those scars. Yeah. And we can only imagine what that was. And mm-hmm. I think he is the perfect example of the victim becoming the victimizer. Yeah. Right? He's the perfect example of someone who takes something terrible that's happened in their life and they're like, well, that's what humans are. And then they do horrible things and that's like, and that's what I am. Yeah. And then, and then it projects further and it's like, and if that's what I am, that's what, everyone has to be because that's the only way that I can excuse what I've done Yeah, is if it's just natural, if it's just the way things are. And maybe that's the fundamental drive of why he's doing it because (laughs) it's like on a very subconscious level. I don't think he's like consciously being like, well, I just want to prove that I'm okay. Mm -hmm. Because most of the time we never, we never boil our motivations down to why am I doing it? Mm-hmm. We always come up with excuses like, oh, it's, you know, we don't even know why we do things so often. Right. And I think, I don't know whether the Joker understands that he's, but I think that, I think if you boil it down to first, first principles, why would someone want to prove that the, the that everyone is horrible? Well, it would be self-justifying. Exactly. Right? I think it's because it justifies him. Yeah. And this is what I meant. I think we're getting a little bit closer to the heart of the thing that I meant when I said that this is so dark that it it almost can't be dealt with by people because they don't want to go this. They don't even want to talk about things that they're this dark in the human psyche. And so what you what you kind of talked like that that darkness, it reminded me a little bit of okay, well, what are the motivations for people who who shoot up a school? Yeah, you know what I mean, like. If you marry bullying, lack of social graces in a person, uh, you marry some nihilism in there and some meaningless about life, harassment, radical ideologies, potentially, but it doesn't even like, no. you know what, you, like if you throw in all of these different kind of really sad and lonely and temperamental ingredients into a cake, you're going to have the the kind of person who's dedicated to destruction 
of them and others, which yeah. is kind of like the archetype of of evil in a sense. Like that isn't like the the Joker is an archetype of evil, and I think he's one of the greatest in culture because he's one we have a hard time talking about because who wants to go and try and get into the mind of someone like Eric Harris, right? The guy who shot up Columbine. Yeah. We want simple answers to people uh, like oh, that. Right. And, and and we want it to be okay, I want I don't want to say it like that because then like there is a kind of I think this and I think this is a psychological defense mechanism and I don't really know exactly what it is, but it's been my experience in life. There are things that people do in the world that are of motivations that we can't comprehend because it's too far into the abyss. Yeah. Right? Yeah, they've they've gone places that we can't go psychologically yeah. without destroying ourselves. And there's a terror there. Yeah. So it there's no there's a psychological well, and shame. Yeah. There's an immense oh, there, oh, I can only probably imagine. a lot of things. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's a whole host of of feelings and emotions mm-hmm. that you're gonna have to words your darkest because we all know that the darkness dwells within us. Yeah, right. And in our very like at the very depths of like the the sewers of our soul. Yeah, and we don't want to go there. Mm-hmm. And so then there's this psychological aversion that you mentioned that makes us talk about things like mental health or bullying or harassment, which are important to talk about, obviously. But I don't think it gets to the heart of the issue, which I think what I rediscovered watching Dark Knight this time is the elephant in the room existentially of dealing with nihilism. Yes. And the Joker is a, I think, my my, uh, estimation on this is the Joker is a realistic portrayal of a true nihilist who is once that has been discovered is bent on destruction over a creation and there's no reasoning with a person like that no. right there's no reasoning with the joker he just has to be defeated because he legitimately does like he is in that sense a complete and mm-hmm. utter ideologue and he's like there is no other truth than the truth that yeah. i know and we mentioned this a bit earlier but his defeat comes not from Batman, but from the things Batman believes in. Yes. Which is why this is a beautiful story, narratively, at a higher level, that I never would have got when I first watched it. <laughs> it would yeah. have taken the extra decade and a bit of reading and thinking that... I and was probably like, this podcast talking about Sure, these yeah, it's too, helped yeah. a lot. On the flip side of that, why Batman is so uh, laudable and inspirational is that he realizes it's not him that one but it's what he's fighting for right like there's something so much bigger than himself that he knows that he's a symbol for that he works towards because it's actually the people not killing each other when the joker has as it were given them no other choice but them deferring saying (laughs) yeah say we'd rather die (laughs) we'd rather die than than kill others have this blood on our hands it's a moment in the movie where the better angels of humanity come out and that's what beats the Joker is being better than his analysis. Than saying, yeah, the abyss might be there, but we're willing to go into the abyss rather than violate our principles of caring for one another. Yeah, and I mean, if you, it's hard to imagine because it's such a fantastical moment, but if you imagine actually being a person on one of those ferries that had to blow the other ferry up and kill however many hundreds of people on the other one, like what would be going through your mind of motivation? (laughs) Yeah. Throughout all that. I mean, that's a really hard 
thought to have, right? What would, and I don't know the answer. And like, so to me, like the heroes of the movie are really the people on the ferry. Well, they are. <laughs> and, and, and they, because, and that's maybe really the heroes of the world in general. Yeah. I, I, I like to think it's, there's a, I've, I'm sure you've heard of it. There's humans of New York, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I just love looking at it because what is humans of New York doing? They even meet a humans of Nelson, my yeah. hometown. <laughs> oh, did they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like they take the real story, the story. Like one of the things I love most about humanity is that it's not archetypes. I know that sounds crazy, but because mm-hmm. uh, we talk about that all the time, but there's so much nuance and there's so much individuality in every person that not only reflects, but grows into who they are. And when we try to capture that yeah. beauty, uh, one of my favorite books is a book called Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. It's just a story of an old preacher who's writing letters to his young son who he had in his old age mm-hmm. saying, I'm going to miss you growing up. And these are the things that I've thought about in my life. Yeah. And that's it. Right. And what I think the defense of the common man yeah. The the belief that the common man and and actually I agree with you. The beauty of Batman is that his belief in people triumphs the, the Joker's disbelief, Joker, the yeah. cynicism of the Joker. And the cynicism of the Joker is not just a nihilist cynicism, right? There is so much uh when we command and control economies like governments that believe they know what's best for their stupid citizens, mm-hmm. that their stupid citizens would just do what they say. It's not just that. It's it's um it's a superiority complex. <laughs> Let's be frank. Well, that's the there Joker too. Joker has a superiority complex. Yeah, he thinks he understands what people will do better than they do. Right, and he thinks he's better than them because of that, and because humans are actually very predictable in yeah. their psychologies he's often right which is a which is a confirmation bias confirmation bias. exactly right yes and so that moment where he's wrong is so delicious for me hey <laughs> I, well i mean it's one of those like the hope springs eternal right mm-hmm. and it's the idea that oh wait no we don't have to be these yeah. shitty people who destroy one another for self-interest. Maybe self-interest isn't everything there right. is in us. Well, and as you're as I'm thinking about this on the spot and what you're talking about, it reminds me, okay, so what I would indict the Joker on philosophically, the Joker makes the mistake of essentialism. He essentializes people to their worst motives and their worst moments. And he's like, even if you show these other behavior traits that are more indicative of the better angels of our nature, that's not really what you are. Really what you are is this thing. Now, I happen to think essentialism is a impoverished philosophical view because it it gives no sense of time and change and adaptation or whatever. Right? Well, it, <laughs> it just, it, it goes, essentialism makes the same mistake that ideology does in placing people. Well, yeah, in, that's a good point. In, in these contextualized boxes mm-hmm. so that they can be understood right. simply. Whereas the complexity of, of everything, right. it's beyond comprehension. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it makes sense. It's, it's really the, it's really a, um, the, one of the biggest problems we face as humans is how are we going to communicate? How are we going to understand things? How are we going to generalize yeah. the specific? Right? Yeah. But that's how we navigate the universe. <laughs> we have to generalize this. Math is a generalization of the specific. Yes. Right? But the I guess the, the, is, the, the issue I would take is that it's very tempting to stay there. 
No, not not only is it tempting, it feels safe. Yes. And if you can explain the world with Mm -hmm. the generalizations, and you create this whole series of generalizations in which suddenly everything makes sense. Yeah. And that's what the Joker's done. Yep, he has. He's totally. I love that. He's essentialized things. Yeah. But all essentializing is, at its core, is saying, no, Mm -hmm. the world is this way. You're wrong. This is what actually is. Yeah. And the the nastiness of the confirmation bias then comes in where every new piece of evidence has to fit your pre-existing essentialization of whatever it is you're talking about. And there's a lot of that ha- that happens for the Joker because people do kind of fall neatly into the chalk outlines he's drawn for them on the street to fall into. Yeah. But contrasted to Batman, again, why this I feel like this is upper echelon stuff is that Batman isn't denying those dark sides of people. He's saying that's not the whole story. Yes. And there are, instead of one or two or three different parts of human nature, he's saying, like, essentially, well, there's maybe, like, four billion. <laughs> yeah. And we have to work harder to figure out what are the bad, what are the good, how do we even categorize, how do we categorize those, how do we work on them, how do we incentivize one part of human nature and de-incentivize another part of human nature, what are we trying to work towards? And all of that project, which I don't even think Batman could articulate about himself, but what I see in him, all that gathered together, that kind of complexity, wading through the milieu and the messiness of life to try and make it a little bit better for tomorrow, is what I'm calling the liberal conscience. Yeah, except I I don't think that I fully agree with you on that. I've been thinking about this. Okay. I think Batman sees his role actually as, like, and this movie articulates it quite well. He wants there to be a a Harvey Dent. Right. Right? Because he can't be Harvey Dent. And he knows that. Mm -hmm. Because he has tarnished himself. There's a great scene in the Bible uh, where King David says to God, he says, I want to build you a temple. You know, I've conquered. I now rule Mm -hmm. over Israel. The Philistines have been defeated. I want to build you a temple. I love you. Like, there's, there's a lot of love going from david to god within the <laughs> biblical story, narrative and god says no because there's blood on your hands your son will build the temple now why is that important as a story well batman has come to the realization that violence must be done against evil mm. but that a truly noble hero cannot resort to violence yeah in order to get his way so he i mean even the very end of this movie where it's like He's not the hero, you know, we need, but he's the hero we deserve. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And and that line is so profound. How is he the hero they deserve? Because they're the, they didn't blow each other up. Or I think it's, he's not the hero, he's the hero we need. Or is it a hero we deserve? Oh, <laughs> shoot. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever the line is, the line it's is, very important. It's very important. <laughs> but the importance of it can't be lost is that he's doing the dirty work mm-hmm. that others aren't, that others a shouldn't like he is taking a much harder path than being the liberal conscience he is essentially the watchdog yeah and he's hoping that being the watchdog will allow space for liberal conscience yes yeah right but but he is actually violating the liberal conscience in a sense Uh, how is he violating it well he is um he's a vigilante he's not like rule of law right he's he's violating rule of law Mm -hmm. um he's doing violence essentially he's realized that the bad guys are so powerful Mm -hmm. or the you know the corrupt 
uh, evil people in Gotham are so powerful that someone has to inflict damage and and and, and I mean we learned this in the first one inflict fear upon them yeah right yeah, yeah and I mean we see this at the beginning of Dark Knight because of the fear that he's inflicted there's a a bit of a rise in good people actually trying to do <laughs> things right yeah but but they can't do it the way he does no because if they did they wouldn't be the liberal conscience okay yeah that that makes sense. I like, think you're. That's how a, would they be better than the bad guys? Okay, they're just taking things into their own hands. So, Batman, it seems, is motivated to help people who deserve it. Now, that's like a postulation that we could spend hours coming at from every angle, and that'd be interesting. But if if we can accept that kind of normative starting point for Batman, like he's trying to help people who need help from people who are trying to hurt. Like people yeah. who are, there are people who are violating the harm principle and people who aren't. Yeah. And he's trying to help the people who aren't. Now, I agree. A lot of his behavior, the vigilante, would not be what I would call <laughs> a liberal way of doing something. But why I'm calling the things motivating him to, to come after him, if you will, if, even if he has to fall on the sword for it that are the liberal conscience, is because he understands that it's actually a lot more work. <laughs> you can never show this in a movie. Because it'd, it'd be too boring and take too long. I think if Batman were to win in totality and be accepted and all this kind of stuff, he would renounce his role and say, okay, now we need to go back to... For sure. To a rule of well, law. Well, that's why I'm saying a, he's walking a... And that's why he doesn't want people copying him. Yeah, exactly. And that's why he doesn't want... Yeah, he... he he understands that what he's doing yeah. isn't good. So it's I, just I, necessary. I think the way I'm using liberal conscience for Batman is just symbolic. Right. It's not actually what he's doing in the movie because I think he's representing, if you will, he's a symbol to me of the person who wants to do the harder, longer work that tries its best to work through the ins and outs of the human condition as opposed to focusing on one aspect of it and essentializing it. Right. Does that make sense? Okay, that makes sense. Like yeah. his his belief structure would be liberal. Exactly. That's um, what I mean. Yeah. Okay. Okay. No, I agree with that. And in fact, I think he embodies the the concept that you've come up with of the hard headed, soft hearted. Like he does. He he. And I like also that we've been using wolves and shepherds. Right. He embodies the shepherd. Yeah. Like he's not going to let people fuck with the sheep. Like. <laughs> yeah. In fact, he's going to actively harm them. And if they here's try. A, to extend that metaphor a bit. I think. One of the biggest motivating factors for Batman of why he doesn't want anyone to fuck with the sheep is because he knows that being a sheep is only one aspect of what they can be. Yeah. Yes. Right? Like and sheep- not only that, but there's a purity to that that he no longer gets to have mm-hmm. because evil, so much evil has been done to him. Yeah. But he wants to preserve that. Yes. He doesn't want the, their souls corrupted yeah. by evil. And again, I think him as a symbol, and I don't know if the people of Gotham would get this about batman exactly uh, because i don't know how much they would know of his specific backstory but for us as the audience we actually I, i probably talked about this in batman begins too batman is the perfect candidate for that descent into nihilism because he watched through chaos his parents die (laughs) right like he if anyone has a good like he has as good of an excuse as the joker to be the joker yes and he chooses not to be so he is kind of, again, the symbol 
that even if we're in a meaningless universe, you can create meaning because of being able to move up and down and rise <laughs> beyond what you're essentially supposed to be. Little uh, foreshadowing there for Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. He's lying on his back in the mud beside the Joker, and the Joker is saying, oh, okay, this is the lot of things. Everyone should be here with me, Everyone and, I'm gonna, and I'm going to spend my life making that. And Batman's saying, fuck, I, could, I might fall back into this mud a hundred times, but there's still something in the structure of existence that allows me to get out of the mud sometimes. And when I'm out of the mud, there's some happiness to be had, and that's what I'm going to work on. And I'm not just going to focus on dumbass interpretations of reality to say you're either in the mud or you're not like maybe there's something good about being in the mud from time to time that allows you to enjoy that like there's just there's something so much more dynamic maybe to you Batman's can maybe you can worldview. wash the mud off yeah and you know and help others get out of the mud mm-hmm. and so again i want to make a, a very clear distinction i'm not using the term liberal or conservative in a partisan or a political sense like i just mean the moment a conscience realizes the world's a lot more difficult than one or two interpretations and we have to really work through all of that to figure out what it is we're trying to do which is really arguably what the enlightenment is that yeah is finally realizing oh (laughs) there's a complexity here that we don't understand well because there's a there's there's a moment where any person who's gone through this, I think, will know what I mean, where you realize the overarching story you've been told has holes in it. And so you're not 100% sure of what to do. And I think a lot of people in those moments double down. And yes. so, so yeah. in a sense, the Joker has a overarching story or he's an overarching down. Near, uh, he's yeah down. he's doubled down on his story about people right because he's seen the worst he's experienced the worst he said that's he's what done the worst he's done the worst this is what people are and i mean we don't know maybe the first hole in that overarching story comes when the people don't blow up the boats yeah <laughs> you know yeah. and so anyway i don't know like all of this still feels like it's a little bit ethereal but it's just so interesting to me because i never until even maybe a couple of years ago, I could never have thought about Batman and Joker at this kind of level. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. at such yeah. a, I do a know deeply representational level about the way we think about human nature. But I think going back to things we've talked about before is there's a reason these these stories hold value to people, and mm-hmm. it's not because they're simple. Yeah, it's because actually when you dig into what an archetype is, yeah. You discover, just like humans, there's mm-hmm. an infinite complexity there, and archetypes don't appeal to the to the bot or lowest common denominator, mm-hmm. as you like to say. The highest common denominator is what <laughs> yes. they appeal to. Yeah, they be, they appeal to different. They nuance. meander. They meander through your mind. Yeah, and they appeal to different things and different people. Like there are different things that people love about Batman. Yes. Yeah. 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 Like. I I think some people really love that he's he's a badass. Yes. Right. Yeah. Other people really love that he's you know he's defending the helpless. Mm-hmm. Other people like his kind of stoicism. Right. There's so much about Batman that people love, and that's why the archetype appeals to people. Not because oh, good versus bad, simplistic, blah 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 blah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, there's um I mean, I think I brought it up a bit with Star Wars. Like there's different reasons to like these kind of stories at different stages of your life. Yes, <laughs> like, yes you know? Yeah. And when I was 21 and this movie came out, I loved the fight scenes and I loved like the exploding the acting the even hitting yeah. that uh, the trip cord or oh. the oh and getting attached to the trip cord and flipping that's uh, like an incredible oh. cinematic yeah that the semi and yes yeah <laughs> all of it even like the cinematography was I remember just thinking like holy especially the one scene where there it's the party and the Joker shows up to Bruce Wayne's party. Yes. Yeah. The cinematography of that scene is mind-blowing. Like, just the way the camera follows him around. So all of that kind of stuff, you're right. That would have been what I noticed. But now that I kind of have a little bit more of a, a thought process to focus on abstraction and, the, like, the kind of representational aspects of all of this, I'm like, holy shit. This is, like, as good as it gets yeah. for movie making, I think. Well, I think that's what the critics understood. Like that, this was truly a profound reflection, yeah, on human nature, on good versus on good, quote versus evil, quote. Right. Well, and I mean, you could never really know the artist's intent, but I'll give the benefit of the doubt. Like, the more I think about this Batman trilogy, especially, the more I'm I'm just connecting more and more things to it. Like, it just, it seems, it's weird to say this about one of the most famous movies of the last 20 years, but it seems like it's bigger than it actually is. <laughs> like, it right. seems like it actually has way more to it than it seems. <laughs> it's bigger on the inside. Like, yeah. it's it's so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's It's grown so much on my thinking that I am a little humbled, even, by such a blockbuster movie being... Like these just really like incisive takes on human nature and how we feel about society and how we f- how we would interact with other people in it and how we interact with our own pain. Because mm-hmm. I mean, frankly, you're right. Batman has just as much of a reason to be the Joker as the Joker does, as mm-hmm. far as we know. Yeah. And yet, how does he interact with it? He becomes disciplined and stoic, and then and then dedicates his life to service of others. Now, I wonder, just as a tangent in the Batman-Joker universe, I wonder how much of that has to do with potentially people being there for Batman in a way that people weren't well, for the that, Joker. Yes, that's a whole other question. And I think yeah. that's a whole other question, but I think it's that would be my candidate for the most relevant variable missing for the Joker that was there yes. for Batman. Because if you think about the steadying feature of someone beside you who actually cares about you. I mean, if you in, have an in your darkest and moments, Rachel yeah. in your life. Mm-hmm. And, and really, that's how we we can all be the hero to in our own lives. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not all going to be able to take out the Joker. But I think we can all be there when someone is experiencing pain. In their low moments, for in their, sure. In their worst yeah. moments. Well, and you think about potential tragedies averted i'm thinking specifically of school shootings like a lot of the and i'm not an expert on this but it seems to me a lot of the kind of manifestos or a lot of the the (laughs) glaring things in these people's stories is that there just wasn't someone there for them or uh, like obviously worse people were bullying or harassing but there just wasn't kind of like a a substantial comment from someone who's like well actually you you have a lot of worth and let's be fair to people choices can inflict isolation right yeah and um and then it's hard to break into another person's isolation once they've become isolated and then it's a 
it's confirmation bias, mm-hmm. it's cyclical, and and you you spiral out of control. Yeah. But isolation is something that's very hard to overcome, mm-hmm. and it is a real response to pain. Yeah. Right. Is is to kind of I mean when dogs or animals are dying, often they'll crawl off to be by themselves. Yeah. And when we're hurting, I think <clears throat> not necessarily you or I, but people in general. What do you do? You kind of... Yeah, it's easy to isolate. And I think maybe that's why it's... um, Again, we talked about the harder path. It's part of the harder path to be a person who looks for people who are doing that, who are self-withdrawing, and to offer out an olive branch at some in some manner. Or at least, like, say, hey, you seem a little off. Is there anything I could do? And, like, this is... Honestly, this is what I do with kids at work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I it's very and I mean it's a little different in the sense that I have a responsibility, but even kids not in my programs, I look you just tell they're off, they're withdrawn, they're quiet, and it's easier to tell with kids probably. But a withdrawn kid is very different than an angry kid. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. The 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 difference of how a kid emotes sadness versus anger is easier to spot. Well, and there's um, different ways of reacting to, I mean, we've talked about the homicidal versus suicidal drive, right? Yeah. And I feel like the isolationist is more of the suicidal drive. And and in, what, what appears to have happened with the Joker, and we, we, we don't know, but mm-hmm. what appears to have happened is he took all that pain and he internalized, 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 mm-hmm. isolated, 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 till essentially he's al- alone in his own universe. Right. Who are the Joker's friends? Yeah. And then there's no correctives for him. Exactly. Right? So he's so... He becomes the god of that universe because it's such a small universe. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. The, like, it, it's it's just... I wonder if you widen the view long enough, everybody becomes tragedy. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, if you widen the view to Joker's youth and his yes. abuse, it's tragedy. Right? Yeah. And so Well, no. See, I guess... No, because Batman doesn't become tragedy. No, I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, I Oh, w- you mean all evil becomes tragedy? Yeah. Yes. It, it, evil becomes tragedy in the sense that, well, I mean, this is a, this is a really different topic altogether in, in uh, talking about like, well, what do we consider an essential version? <laughs> and I use that word <laughs> self-awarely. <laughs> Ironically. What, what do we, what's the essential causal part of a chain of events? <laughs> right? Yes. Like, well, which, I don't think there is. This is, but but see the thing is our brains, they want are kind of naturally primed for it. I mean, in philosophy class, the when we were talking about essential causal change, it would talk about like, well, what's the essential cause of someone hitting a baseball through their neighbor's window? Obviously, our we blame whoever did it because that's kind of. But what about the pitcher? <laughs> what about the pitcher? What about the person who made the baseball? What about the person who made the bat? Like right. there is a logical chain that goes back for things but what's the essential one that we care about when it comes to justice holding people accountable to things now there's common sense pragmatic normative ways that we do that and i think that's very functional what i'm saying is there's no deep essential reason other than i guess functionalism of society well again this is going back to what we were saying earlier we we contextualize things through generalization right whereas the nuance of of specificity doesn't allow for that mm-hmm. so so we have to you're right in order to function with one another and even or to even interact <laughs> with one another yeah in order to do what you and i are doing right now exactly. there has to be extreme generalization but at its most fundamental but again i don't think it's only tragedy because i i it goes back to choices right 
So when the joke and 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 it's hard, like when you're a kid, how do you make the right choice? Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the tragedy. Mm-hmm. But there are children who've been in abusive homes who have grown up and lived as productive members of society and forgiven and lived on. Yeah, right? and this goes back to our our Narnia episode about forgiveness. Mm-hmm. That's the core. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Of civilization. Well, this is what I mean. I think too, like because it's obviously history is tragedy like i think that that's like a not a terrible heuristic to think about the sad ways we've dealt with each other yes. in the past yes mm. but what vitiates for me and has a lot of valence is okay does expanding that version of uh, we'll talk about the joker if you knew the entirety of the joker's history and all the abuse and terrible things that he went through that made him the way he was how does that change your perspective on something like rehabilitation and yeah. Does it it change to me personally? It changes the way I want justice meted out to a person like this. It really, really removes my desire for retribution as much as it's rehabilitation. It brings about a greater understanding of the complexity of causation, right? I mean, again, when it comes to justice, most people want justice, Mm -hmm. they want they want someone to pay. For the sin, for the for the thing that occurred, yeah. right? But that isn't necessarily a view of justice that addresses the issue. I know, and it, I mean, I'm way out of my depth here, <laughs> both politically I mean, is, and philosophically. There's a whole bunch of like theorizing on this. Like I've read a lot on yeah. restorative justice and rehabilitation and stuff. Canada, obviously, way bigger on that than say the United States is, mm-hmm. um, and 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 I want to be careful because uh, good <laughs> i think there's a this is a very dangerous path to walk in saying that people should should we rehabilitate everyone the joker is a not just a bad person not no. just a murderer not just a uh careless with human lives he he's he's a terrorist like yes yeah he yeah, yeah. he is inducing terror in people now mm-hmm. what made him like that a question but can he be redeemed I don't know if that's a, a gamble that society should take. Sure, yeah, I know. And I think that you have to kind of, well, <laughs> I have so many gaps in my knowledge of even the political philosophy of this kind of stuff, but you just kind of have to, I, I do think for a functional society, there are just different arbitrary lines that you have to draw when it comes to things like imprisonment and laws that are, <laughs> they work 99% of the time, 99.9% of the time, and that one sliver of 1% or 0.1% where they're not working, you've got to be as fastidious as possible to figure out what you actually mean when you're imprisoning someone or you're putting them into jail or you're constricting their liberty in some manner. Yeah, that's a common sense kind of like shorthand we have to use because there's just so many fucking people in the world who do many, so many fucking things that it's hard to keep track of. But... Well, I'm I'm inspired by the idea of the long-term goal of always learning from everybody about everything in order to improve for later. And I will say, I mean, we'll put this in like medieval history so we don't have many egos on the line in anyone in the world right now. I do think that there is a kind of, if you just have like, I mean, in, in a lot of medieval European history, justice was meted out retributively with 
death, <laughs> right? Yes. And there's something so categorical about death for <laughs> the human condition, in unlike anything else. This is why I think it's the prime motivator of basically everything. Yeah, I, I, you know yeah. what I mean? And so there's a finality to a death that doesn't allow for rehabilitation. Yes. Now, even if you had 90 out of 100 people who wouldn't, you are snuffing out the 10 who would. And I know, and then it becomes a question of... <laughs> like, what kind of calculus Well, that's the calculus. Are is there a calculus doing, that you can you make? Know? Well, it's because we don't have... Well, and there, I don't know if we ever could measure this kind of thing. However, I think part of a common sense liberal conscience realizes that a lot, and especially the more we're learning about the brain, a lot of people's behavior is a lot less under what we call their conscious control than we thought before. And we just could have never thought about this. And, you know, if you read a lot of well, people's again, explanations again, for I, behavior. I don't, I don't even agree with the conscious versus unconscious dichotomy. I think there's levels of conscious. And, I, I mean, that's pretty obvious. Yeah. Anyone listening to this podcast who's been drunk yeah. knows that there's a difference between sobriety and drunkenness. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's, again, a difference between that and being, let, let's say, high on on marijuana. Right. And then there's a difference, again, between being asleep and dreaming. Of course, yeah. And, and I mean... I mean, you and I are people who think about this a lot and our language fails us. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. On what we actually mean by the categories no, we're trying no, to no. carve out. No, I, I I was just I know what you're trying and to so say. And yeah. so what I'm what I'm I guess I'm trying to claw my way into is this kind of like maybe equilibrium state of having a hundred different tensions coming on us that keep us healthy in one way, is that with all of that complication and uncertainty, the finality of death at least can be a benchmark where we're trying to avoid yes, yes right so this is why i am not totally i just don't feel intuitively i don't feel good about the death penalty for um mm. as a form of justice not and think, and, and, and here's it why it seems to be that society has, has largely agreed with you on that yeah, point and and i think and i and i'm not romanticizing the criminal. That's right. not my point. My point is, even at its most minimum, what are we not learning about this mindset that can help us in the future? I mean, kind of thing. My favorite book for most of my life has been Les Miserables, mm -hmm. right? Uh, what is that? Is the story <laughs> of a criminal? <laughs> I have a, I have a Who confession. Yeah, I've never read that book. Oh well, and I didn't see the movie either, <laughs> so I don't gonna, actually know the story. You're gonna have to get on that then. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I mean, this is something I think we could talk about forever. Yes. And I feel like probably we should do it <laughs> at a bar sometime or just hanging out. Yeah, yeah. Maybe with a couple of friends. Hey, everybody. Dave and I just want to take a second to say thank you for listening. Making this podcast has been a great experience, and we really appreciate all of you who choose to spend some time with us. Part of our goal is to be super open about everything we talk about on the podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, ideas, feedback, clarifications, or praise, please send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Also, if you get your podcasts on iTunes or Spotify, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you get notified when a new episode is released. If you feel so inclined, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. That is a really good way to help new listeners find the show. And please pass the show along to anyone who you think may enjoy it. Again, thank you so much for listening, because as I'm sure you have gathered, we love talking.
So here was one of the things that I really thought a lot about when it came up in the movie. It's the scene where the Joker approaches all of the gangsters yes, for the yeah. first time. And all of the gangsters... Iconic scene. Yeah, very sure. iconic, where he kill, like, I guess he kills the guy with, with the, pencil the pencil into his yeah. face. And it's, it seemed to me that all the gangsters were like, they're trying to figure out how to solve their problem, which was like the cops being not scared of them anymore, basically. And they're like, well, what if we did crime here? Or got to worry about the cops? Or like, how do we... It was kind of like minor adjustments to the business. At least that was the impression I got about the way the, the, all the mobsters were talking to each other, right? Mm-hmm. And the Joker comes in and he says, I can't remember verbatim, but he says something along the lines of, well, your problem isn't all of these cops. Your problem is Batman, <laughs> right? Because yeah. Batman is the symbol and the vigilante who's both a kick-ass badass in himself and inspiring all the cops to, to fight you. To fight you and giving all the people hope against you. So, like, everyone's uprising. So, he goes to the fountainhead of the problem, right? I really appreciated that, <laughs> weirdly, from the Joker. Because it seems to me like that's something it's hard for people to do. Is to go to the most direct source of something. Because it's a little bit harder to talk about. I mean, I think it'd be a little bit harder for the gangsters to figure out what to do with Batman. <laughs> because yeah, he's they, just they so just be like, dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And he's so smart. And he's so unpredictable. And they're not quite sure of their margins <laughs> for going about that maybe, right? And so in the last couple of days, I've been thinking about this specific point a lot. And it made me think of something in particular that I wanted to kind of hash out with you a bit. Because this might seem like a really weird connection. But it actually made me think about how I feel about gay rights. Oh, boy. <laughs> All right. So here you go. I think this is a... Okay, here we go. <laughs> or, sorry, uh, gay marriage, let's say. Okay? So I remember when I was in university, like 2005 to 2010, it was all on the ascendancy, and I was, you know, really gung-ho about that kind of stuff. As I've gotten a little older, I feel like the entire the entire narrative of this thing is misguided. I feel like our culture focused on the wrong thing. They focused on gay marriage. To me, the fountainhead of this kind of discussion is not what's your opinion on gay marriage. What's your opinion on homosexuality? Because that's a more fundamental aspect of what we're talking about. Because homosexuality is the human part and gay marriage is the legislative or the convention part. Well, I, okay, okay. But and I so, think the reason that, that gay marriage was focused on. So I, mm-hmm. I don't think that there was ever a question in the gay rights movement mind of, of how certain people felt about their homosexuality. I mean, that was pretty obvious. Well, maybe, but I would still say that's beside the point because that's actually what should have been debated. No, because that's still not agreed on. If people are gay or not? Or whether that's okay or not. So, so... What they're trying to do here, so like if you think about it as social change and, and social movement, they know that there are people out there. So if you Who's are, the they? if you're a homosexual or mm-hmm. if you're a oppressed sexual minority, yeah. let's let's put it that way. Right. If you're an oppressed sexual minority, you already know that there are people out there that hate you. Sure. That, okay. They yeah. hate you for being you. Yes. It has nothing to do with whether you marry or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, it used to be that they would be hunted down and, and killed. Right. Lynched, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I, I agree. Like, I think we're on the so, same page so, about this. So the reason that it had to be legislative before, for they so they understood that. They mm-hmm. understood that that was the battle. And that's not a battle you can win against someone who's who is uh, has a dichotomous view of reality. You're not going to educate them out of thinking that you're evil 
Yeah. Okay. I guess I'm trying to think of this a little bit more philosophically. In well, the I, sense well, that, I guess what I mean is, I guess okay, maybe I'm misunderstanding you, mm-hmm. but I'm just trying to understand why why you would say that they went about it wrong when really, how else could you go about it but changing the law? Because uh, I think that the more substantial way is the hearts and minds way, and the hearts and minds way is not is gay marriage okay or not? It's is homosexuality okay or not? But I think that I think they'd be multi- fighting a multi front war. Like think of like. Um, well, here's what I mean. Will and Grace. Yeah, but there's a, like, okay, let's just forget the world we live in for a second. And just, if it was postulated and then accepted that homosexuality is fine, right? Or existent. Yeah. Like, gay marriage is a no-brainer. Is irrelevant, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, that that becomes not relevant. And so I'm saying, even if legislating it was necessary, in my mind, that always, that felt kind of backwards in terms of logic and thinking because actually it is homosexuality that people care about deep down much yeah. more than gay marriage oh yeah i agree <laughs> and then i think the people who would be opposed to homosexuality mask it in the facade of well it's not good for kids or it's just not our tradition oh for yeah for sure and yeah. i'm saying even if you don't convince everybody you strip away the facade and you strip away the mask, and then it is just, I don't like you because of that. <laughs> and right, but I feel like that kind of bald-faced way of opposing gay rights is ultimately doomed. Because I do think our sympathetic attachment to our fellow humans is stronger than that. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I, buy, I think this debate... At least in Canada, this debate is over. Yeah, no, no, and I and I think that maybe it's it's uh, past its prime in the spotlight. <laughs> Although you never know. Like there no, could no, be no. I, I think there's still obviously um, there's a lot of lot to be said for accepting minorities and like we are we are tribal creatures, right? And so difference mm-hmm. is not generally accepted on a primitive level. Like, mm-hmm. and, and, and this is something that I really, I guess I'm going to get bold here. This is something that I really don't like about the gay rights movement. Okay, is that it becomes tribal? <laughs> In what sense? It becomes it's us versus them. Sure, uh, right? It's, yeah, uh, this is our identity. This is like this is everything, mm-hmm. right? Well. All of my closest same-sex attracted friends, all of them are just people I love, and they happen to be into guys or girls, right? And that's not the totality of who they are, and they would never say that, and Mm -hmm. I would never say that. But it becomes a simplification of who they are in order to achieve a political objective. Yeah, that's true. I And I see equally, and I know this because this is how it works, Mm Mm-hmm. It is much easier to control people right. when you can control part of their identity. So let's say your identity is as an evangelical Christian. Okay. Then telling them they're being attacked yeah. by society for their beliefs will make them rally around you. In a similar vein, if your identity is your sexuality, telling you you're attacked. Well, I think this is why we talked a little bit about I think it was last time the downside of emphasizing identity yes. as a major yeah. facet to be worried about in the world. You're right that like the the potential overcorrection of a good movement is a really important problem 
and it's one I would want to get to. I think the the, the, the bigger issue is is that I don't. I think that if we're thinking as if we're trying to be as thoughtful as possible, right, and trying to live as an enlightened life as possible, mm-hmm. we have to realize that something as simple as your sexuality cannot be the totality of your identity, and it shouldn't even be the cornerstone. Totally, I, I agree with that. I, I guess so. I'm trying to think through this now to to put it the right the way I mean it the most. In this example, uh, I guess all of the mobsters would be the people who are advocating for gay rights, but talking about it in the terms of political or the gay right. marriage debate. Joker comes in and says, "No, you got to talk about homosexuality. You can't talk about gay marriage because that's the heart of the issue." And I guess, and maybe this is the controversial point I would make, is that if the debate at the time when it was more relevant was about people's stance not on gay marriage but on on people's stance on homosexuality it would come out much more as rank prejudice than it does if you can couch it in political reasons why or even traditional reasons why you don't think gay marriage should happen kind of thing but i guess you have to you're thinking of it from from one angle that you have to think about it from the other as well yeah right? you have to think about it from the angle of incrementalism right so there's there's platonic idealism, which is the, <laughs> this is the real problem, sure. right? And then there's incrementalism, which is like, look, we know these people hate us. But if we change the law, there are some people who just assume the law is good. I'm sorry to say it. There are literally people who, like, whether it's legal or not determines whether, whether they do it or not. Uh, maybe. I guess I never really thought about it no, like that. No, but for sure. <laughs> and, and normal... I and, guess I don't know and, those people. <laughs> and making something normative in society inoculates yeah, society I, to it. That would be the the practical, the pragmatic approach. And I and I understand that. I do. I really do. But I'm I guess I'm thinking I guess I, why I not guess go for the gold standard because, or the deepest because, thing first. Because um, you never win battles by every task requires a step-by-step process. Yeah, but the Joker had no chance of winning unless he brought up the Batman as the thing to be going for. It's a weird thing in the movie. Like that was the thing that actually gave him even an option because he knew where he knew where the heart of what he was opposing was, it was where it was located. Right. And if he's just fighting the police, yeah. they would just repopulate. Yeah, they, they had yeah, yeah. A belief because there. because regardless of whatever human convention or political statement that will fade with time is in terms of the law about homosexuals getting to be married or not, homosexuality will persist because oh, it's, it's the human thing. It's the human part of what well, we're talking about. It's always been there. Yeah. So what I mean is I think it takes maybe a little courage, but also some intellectual integrity to go to the fountainhead issue. And I mean, this is certainly not to trivialize it, but when I think about something like homosexuality, I think of like, this is one of many variables about a person. Like when yes, you talk about sure. it's not yes, your identity, yeah. right? Why is this the one you're fixated on? Why not because this person has blue eyes? Why not because this person likes this kind of shoe? Why not because this, like- Oh, and that's an easy answer. And if, I know it's an easy yeah. answer. Once it's revealed though, I think our liberal consciences see that as rank prejudice. And it's, noticeable to I don't uh, I, I don't think it's rank prejudice. I I think it is an unhealthy relationship with sexuality. That could be part of it. But that that is a bigger problem than homosexuality. No, oh, I know. <laughs> Do you and, know what I mean? So let's go to the fountainhead. Yeah. Well the fountainhead <laughs> <Right>? fountainhead. <laughs> Not, See, well this is but if you have the attitude to be going to the fountainhead, 
you'll figure out the next fountainhead. Right. Right? And right. then you are sort of solving more problems. True. So. Uh, I see your point. Like, like it's going to be, you haven't given yourself an arbitrary place to start. Stop. Because here's the thing. Like, if you balance your value on the contingency of voting in gay marriage, it can be voted out. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Because it is a human convention. Like, our yeah. political systems are human conventions. So I'm saying that's not as substantial as going for a deeper issue. Like, what is actually our society's take on homosexuality? And I think that that, like you said, in Canada, and I'm very, like, in 2020, it's very awesome. Like, I think it's a much more accepting culture of that form of attraction to other people because it's just people who have attraction to people who are the same sex as them. And, like, it's I think like, whatever. I think uh, Letter Kenny uh, handles this incredibly ah, yeah. well. If you're not a Canadian... Watch Letter Kenny. Yeah. It's a great show. Uh, I think some people have argued that it makes fun of Canadians. I don't get that impression. My impression of it is, <laughs> is that it very it's very articulately describing a certain way of being, right. which I would say is is Canadian. Yeah. And uh, our love for hockey, but our, our mm-hmm. love for... Yeah, it has a weirdly insightful take on a lot of these hot-button social issues, it doesn't does. it? does, and I think that's very intentional. I think there's yeah. a, a great deal these of wisdom. These are smart people. A great deal of wisdom in what is being actually done. And not only that, but also in solidifying a, a Canadian identity. But I realize, too, here, to be fair to you, I am myself utilizing a particular philosophical outlook i have about the world that i haven't really talked to you about so i'm kind of foisting oh. it on you without <laughs> but it's basically in a nutshell and we can talk about this more later i have a kind of i think there are two kinds of liberators of the human individual and i do call them primary and secondary and the secondary liberators are the people who go after the people who have power uh, to change the customs, the laws, the institutions, the primary liberators are the ones who go after the people so that they can figure out how to do it for themselves. Well, politics is downstream from culture. Exactly, right? Yeah. So I, the secondary liberators to me are journalists, um, artists. artists, activists. Well, art of it, artists might straddle the line, but like people who will go after politicians, people who will go after corrupt yeah, <laughs> power yeah. brokers, corrupt corporations. But to me... The liberators I admire the most are the ones who go for the fountainhead well, that's issues. That's what I mean, the, the, the artists. I was thinking of the, the people who go for the fountainhead, the artists. Artists, uh, I would say in its best form, educators. Yeah. <laughs> people who want to talk to people about the human condition. And anyway, but so what, yeah, mentally uh, I was foisting that yes. onto what we were talking right. about. So in general, that was always a weird thing to me why the discussion was about gay marriage and not about homosexuality because it was I so guess clearly me, to me. I, the, I view society in such a – or and my whole understanding of sociology is, is groups and navigating groups and, and, and making groups get along and, and the fact that we're all kind of this mismatch of people trying to – to live together that I didn't I wouldn't say I see it that way I understand why they went about it the way they did I guess is what I would say fair enough yeah <laughs> fair enough like I referenced at the very top of the podcast one of the really funny but I thought in, impactful and things that made me think a little bit at the beginning of the dark Knight is the scene where all of the fake Batmans show up yes, <laughs> and yes. impersonate Batman for good or for ill and I mean Batman takes out one of them and says no guns you know yeah. so like it's a funny way, but I think it's a little bit more relevant now in the age of the power of social media and the internet. So I wanted to get your thought on this a little bit. To what extent and what would be the criteria 
for someone being responsible or not being responsible for someone who claims to be following them is doing or saying. Uh-huh. Because this is a oh, this, this is a this is an important thing this is a because huge question. My bias is definitely towards well, it's not on the like, and I'm thinking especially of people like Jordan Peterson who get labeled things like alt right. This is an unfair thing that people do to him. Like he gets labeled alt right because someone on the internet can find one person who cites him for their terrible ideas, yeah. <laughs> right? So it's it's definitely cherry picked in reality. It feels like, but. Well, that, I think that's it's an- cancel culture, which is simply finding one heterodox thing that someone has done mm-hmm. in order to to ostracize them from the tribe. Well, here's like, another. This is, the, this is basic primitive activity. Um, the Nazis took the most superficial reading of some of Nietzsche's philosophy as their guiding doctrine, yeah, right? It, it, and because- like, is that Nietzsche's fault? bracketing off the really extreme version of of someone trying to get you right like the gotcha journalistic hey there's this one alt-right asshole who likes you jordan peterson so you're alt-right too right bracketing that way like to me it is an open question like how would you even go about figuring out how to well, be okay so the problem with that is the same problem we've been discussing earlier the, the problem that batman sees as the solution which is or do we think people are just sheep that follow Mm-hmm. Yeah, to some degree, but it's it's the Nuremberg trial question. We're just following orders. Mm-hmm. Like I think at the end of the day, personal agency is the foundation of everything, and that uh, they choose that mm-hmm. they choose to follow. Like free speech should be free because we should be free to mock the 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 terrible people. Yeah, right, and the terrible ideas, and people should be held responsible for how they follow an idea right uh so i would say no i'm very radically on the side of you cannot blame someone for what they teach Mm -hmm. you have to blame the people who follow it now i i agree like that's my bias as well but i think that this is such an important question for the way our kind of society is structured now it's so much of it online and impersonal I'm going to try and play devil's advocate here to try and make sure that our biases can deal with the best version right, of, of this. this because I really think it's super difficult to figure out what would be a line in this kind of situation. So I'm thinking of, let's say, someone with influence tweeted out something like, what a day it would be if this particular shop had burglary. <laughs> and then someone... Burgled it. Burgled it. Does any of your intuition, what does your intuition say about the person who tweeted that in the first place? Well, that's a direct abuse of power. Okay. Yeah, for sure. What if they couched it in vaguer language, but not? <laughs> I know I'm nitpicking, but this is what I mean is that I no, think. No, no, I, I see what you're saying. And, and I, I guess what I would say is if someone directly calls for. Right. I think the, the question is, is it being directly called for? Mm-hmm. Because I think trying to judge the intentions of a statement is a nearly impossible task. So as soon as we yeah, get Yeah, you'll down find to, many people online think they are well, experts at it. of course, of course. And I, I have a lot of problems with a lot of people online, but... So it goes. Uh, um, <laughs> but no, if, I, if we're going into the philosophic underpinnings of this, I'd say the harm principle right. is, is how I would define it, is are you calling for harm to be done to others? Mm-hmm. Uh, unjustified harm. Sure. So like, are you calling for the death of terrorists? I'm okay with that. <laughs> Are you calling for a group of people who have done nothing wrong but maybe annoyed you 
to be in some way hurt or or negatively affected, yeah, then that's an abuse of power, and that's a direct abuse of power, and that needs to be challenged. Yeah, I I just I guess I think that a lot of these things happen in much less no, stark a, or a, dire a, circumstances. Well, there's a like vagary not, to it all. Yeah, and there's not a, like there's a lot of it that's not death related. It's just kind of like maybe shitty opinion related. So if we're talking about Batman, like, what's your intuition on people copying Batman? Yeah, and like, I guess do my, you my think... intuition is like Batman's intuition. Like, they've not trained for this, mm-hmm. so a they're they're risking their own safety in a way that he's not risking his own safety. Mm-hmm. B, he's walking a very fine line that even he feels like is violating important principles and doesn't mm-hmm. want others to follow him in that. So specifically in the Batman context, yeah copying him is, is a bad thing sure but on a broader context of copying people like and that's why batman is such a fascinating character because he's actually violating principles he doesn't want other people to violate <laughs> yeah it's and so funny. he's doing the dirty work of justice and and that's a he's really, like the singularity that's a really hard <laughs> like he's starting thing. A... that's a, and and i mean there's a lot more that can be said about batman but in this particular movie i think we've said most of it because most of it's in, in contrast to, to the joker right but how do i feel about him being emulated i think i agree with him like that's a choice that he's made and a choice that he doesn't feel entirely comfortable with and he understands the tension of but people who are emulating him are simply doing it out of like an ideological or, well, or, yeah. or hero worship. Or, there's nothing high-minded about There's nothing high-minded about people. Okay, so here, I'll ask it in a different way then because I feel like this might have more meat on the bone to it. To what extent do you think a person who has influence or a following online is beholden to the idea that there's something incumbent on them in a preliminary sense, fend that kind of thing off. Maybe like a PSA about their own things. Like, here's not what I mean. <laughs> here's, well, I think there's a deep and terrible responsibility for for being known. Sure. I think there's a deep and terrible responsibility for being followed. Mm-hmm. For teaching, too. Thinking about Nietzsche again, maybe some of his reputation would have been foregone in a positive way if he could have just wrote like, by the way, all my Superman stuff is overcoming your own soul, not d- physically domineering other people. Yes. <laughs> right? But did he really believe that? Uh, my interpretation of his writing is, I think it was more internal than external. Probably. But yeah. again. Well, I'm saying he would have saved himself a yeah, lot of no, reputational yeah. <laughs> da- Batman maybe could save himself some reputational damage if he has a disclaimer that says, don't do this. Don't do this. I'm trained. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I'm just wondering if there is, and it's not, so it's not something that would be coerced by a jury or an online mob or any political, but one of, uh, this is a, perfect because Nietzsche wrote this. A line from him I really like is that a good writer not only understands his own spirit, but the spirit of his friends. And to me, Ooh. I interpret that as, okay, what are the things that I believe that if I state them, in what ways could I anticipate they might be misunderstood by other people and forego those by just stating that and then making it a little bit easier <laughs> out of the gate, right? right. And that's how, I, that's how I'm thinking a little bit about how do people especially online, forego bad apples taking their, like what disclaimer is there because of the spirit of the way you know things might get 
taken out of context. Here's a good example. Here's what I mean. I had a really good friend in Korea, someone I really got along with, and he told me he believed in reincarnation. And I was like, oh, what? Really? Like, you seem like a, like a rationalist, basically. And then he elaborated that he meant by what reincarnation is kind of like a multi multiverse theory and an infinite universe theory. So that because the universe is actually for like there'd been infinite big bangs, infinite right. expansions and regressions of the universe because of what infinity entails. Every atom that has accumulated everything has also done that before. So his exact physical constituency down to the atoms had will been happen again. It will happen again and had happened before. And that's what he meant by reincarnation. And I was like, okay, <laughs> let's say that's true. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> That's not what most people think the word reincarnation means. True. That's a very good example. Right? Yeah. And so that's what I'm saying is that I think that little kind of disclaimer about what you know might confuse others or might not be in their spirit as you're writing or talking mm-hmm. is an interesting way to think about how you communicate your thoughts. True. Okay. That's yeah, that's what I'm talking that. about yeah. as it, a more positive. Very carefully articulating... Uh, your verbiage in order to convey the most tight meaning as possible. Wow, whatever. You know what I mean? And, and and this is like my really only critique of Jordan Peterson is that I feel like he sometimes gets himself into preacher mode. And preacher mode is very inspiring and it's a little bit sloppy <laughs> in the verbiage sometimes. Yeah, and I, so. I agree. I think, uh, I think some of it's intentional. Sure. Yeah, maybe. I mean, like... Con- Nothing sells like controversy. So, <laughs> ooh, <laughs> cynical David is I'm not cynical. cynical. I, I think uh, if you Re- want to get your message out, sure, you have to create. You know, mm-hmm. have to create something. Well, just as a nice little epitaph on this section of the Batman's, <laughs> and I mean that specifically, people following Batman. This wasn't what I had in mind when I wanted to inspire people. <laughs> now I just wrote the note of like, okay. The law of unintended consequences no, coming there everywhere. Yeah. yeah, like that's what I think. It's like we talked about this before, so we don't have to spend time. It's prudent to calculate in the hours spent dealing with the unintended consequences of any plan you have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with Gordon's help, he uses Dent to draw the Joker out when they pretend Gordon's dead. And part of what I love about this trilogy is that Batman has good ideas too. Not just that he's always a step behind right. the villain. Now. He is a little bit a step behind the villain in this specific case, but it doesn't appear that way as it's revealed in the movie, right? And even with the sonar, like the things that ways he's able to see, that's a undercurrent plan that Bruce Wayne had the whole movie that gets revealed in the climax of the movie that without it, he couldn't have beaten the Joker. Yes. Right? Yeah. And so I really loved that part of the whole trilogy is that the Batman wasn't just playing catch up the whole time. Like he had secret weapons too. Yeah. And I thought that was kind that of a, a cool really, thing, you know? Cool, yeah. Okay. I guess we should talk a little bit about Batman at the end of this movie. Cause we haven't spent a lot of time on that. He has to fight the cops even to protect the people from the Joker. And I'm whatever Gotham needs me to be. Sometimes people deserve to have their faith rewarded and he takes the fall. So the Joker doesn't win. And it's like, this is a bit of a Jesus motif, right? Well, it also takes the fall so that Harvey Dent's name isn't... Isn't sullied. Because, again, this is the battle not of just the Joker and Batman, but of two different ideas. Exactly, right? And if they see their white knight corrupted, mm-hmm. well, then that's going to make them lose hope in good. 
Yes. And really, fundamentally, this movie is about the battle between hope and despair. Mm-hmm. So Batman falls on the sword reputationally in order that the Joker doesn't win. There's a weird kind of thing in all three of these movies how the only relationship the people of Gotham have with like the police or the superheroes is symbolically like there's no actual physical relationship. Yeah. So it's all just in their heads. What would have happened? Okay. Let's just play a little counterfactual. What do you think, given what we think about the people of Gotham, how would they have reacted if they knew it was Harvey Dent who, who was despicable and, and tried to kill Gordon's family and not, and, and all those people he aided the Joker in trying to kill all those people in the building and not Batman. Like, what would have been the difference, do you think? Well, I think this is a a problem that is going to make me sound a little bit arrogant, but I don't want it to. People need things to believe in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people need people to believe in. Okay. And I guess, in that sense, if I have to point to myself, who are the people that I believe in? Um, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious. If you've listened to this podcast, I'm a big, I have a lot of faith in Elon Musk. Yeah. Not, not, not to a, not to save the world, mm-hmm. but I have a faith in what he represents, the sure. idea that he represents, and the idea that he re- represents to me is human innovation. In order to better our scenario. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and 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 that it's still out there and it's still possible. And if and if I was to suddenly discover that uh, Elon Musk had no intention of ever going to Mars, and this was all a big ploy to make a lot of money, and I stopped believing. In his mission, let's call it, or as he calls it. Sure. That would be pretty devastating. But do you think it's irretrievable? No. But I, I but I think what Batman was trying to avoid, and maybe this is the problem with Batman, and we might see it a little bit this next movie. Mm. Ooh, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> uh, is, and, is that uh, he doesn't even understand how important of a symbol he is. Do you think he doesn't get that at all? Or no, I think maybe he gets at the it, end. But I don't think he fully understands. Okay. So like he's like, I could be anything. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. You can't be anything, <laughs> Batman. So then what would have been the consequences for the social structure of Gotham if Harvey Dent was revealed to be the criminal and Batman was revealed to be the savior again? Well, I think this would be we don't want I think or what Batman doesn't want is for him to become the some kind of like deity, which okay. is essentially what the Joker wants. The Joker wants Batman as one deity, uh, two battling deities. That's what he wants. He's mm-hmm. the deity of chaos. Batman's the deity of order, right? Yeah. Um, Batman has rules, and his rules hurt him. The Joker has no rules, and, and therefore it's freedom, right? That's the war that goes on in this movie. Yeah. Now... Batman doesn't want to be a god. He he <laughs> wants the people of Gotham to start believing that they can get rid of these bad guys. Because Batman also knows he can't get rid of all the bad guys. Right. No matter how hard he works, he's one guy. Right. But if people believe that the bad guys can be taken out, then good people will rise up to defeat them. But if what the people of Gotham find out is that even their good guys are bad guys. Right then are they going to even believe that, that good is possible from people other than these superheroes? Uh, yeah, I, I, it makes sense in the story, and it makes sense the way you're describing it. I, 
that fills me with a little, it makes me sad. It's, there's a sadness to it because it's assuming an unsophistication of the populace, which even if it's justified, I don't think is inevitable. And I think that part of what education does really well is helps you think differently about these kind of things. Because <laughs> it's weird to think about it like this, but if I were to transplant myself as a citizen of Gotham, if the story of Harvey Dent was able to be told, to be as revealed to the people of Gotham as it is to us, the audience, I actually would kind of understand why Harvey Dent went so bad because he's just a person with a frailty, right? Yeah. And, well, this is where I'm saying people and, need heroes. Yeah, but, well, maybe because of this movie makes it so stark. Like, it's almost a binary. <laughs> it's either the White Knight or the Dark Knight, yes, right? right? yeah. This was just a part of the movie that I thought left it, maybe it's because of the end of the movie, I don't know exactly why, but it just left it a little bit too simplistic for what the Peel of Gotham might be able to handle. You know, and I, yeah. and I, and, and here, I'll put it to you in a more forward-thinking sense, is that, I actually really think, even though it's created some disunity, I think that there's been something really substantially and profoundly useful and beneficial to the human condition and our culture of a diversity of thinking. No. You know? Yeah. Uh, Like, that seems like a truism or an obvious thing to say, but I think that aspect of our lives, like the way that we are able to consume all sorts of different media and the internet, this is very recent. <laughs> like again, yes. the internet is very recent. And maybe even in back in 2008, that would have been a harder thing to contemplate is that but a I'd populist that could be- the origin of that is the printing press. Yes. Right? And they said, we don't want the populist. Like there's, there's, there's something more nefarious going on here too, in the sense that dumb people are much easier to control. <laughs> yeah. There's a reason that there were there were books that were banned, and whether it's in the United States, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't think there's some like Illuminati that's ruling the world, but I do think that there are definitely moments where decisions are made on if we allow this kind of information to get out there, mm-hmm. what will people think? Well, here's a good real life thought about it then, because this is like we could. It's really interesting. We the end of this movie demonstrated to me. The fallacy of putting your faith in one person. <laughs> ah. Right? The fallacy that comes into depending so highly, like in the, in the example that you gave, what I think is so cool, and I guess for lack of a better term, I'd have to say the right way to deal with a problem, is that if Elon Musk betrayed you in the way that you specified it would hurt you, but it wouldn't destroy you. True. And you True. would know, and you would know how to move on. Yes. Right? And you'd be able to point out what he did wrong that you're going to hopefully avoid in future people you look up to, right? Yes. And I think part of the implication of this movie that saddens me, not arguing against it, just saddens me, is that the idea is if Gotham found out that Harvey Knight was not the White Knight, he was just as... Harvey Dent. Harvey Dent, yeah, sorry. If he was just not the White Knight, he was just as fallible as any of them, it wouldn't just sadden them, it would destroy them. Well, I think that's, I think really what you're critiquing, what we're critiquing here is Batman. <laughs> and then he was wrong about the people of Gotham. The Joker. No. The, you think Batman he, was wrong? Batman thought they needed Harvey. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Sure. He did. That's why he did what he did. Because mm-hmm. he thought they needed Harvey Dent. Yeah. Well, him and Gordon together. Well, they both thought so. Yeah. 
So, I mean, and that's interesting. And maybe it was only set up that way so they could have a really dramatic third movie <laughs> with the reentrance yeah. of Batman, you know? I don't think they would have... They wouldn't have left the trilogy on that note. No. I would say, right? I would agree. Like, that was... That's actually... Now, I just occurred to me, The End of the Dark Knight is not dissimilar to the end of Empire Strikes Back. No. In the sense of it's, like, sad and dark, if you will. And what's going to happen. And we, what's going to happen... And we've suffered this major defeat, but there are rays of hope. Yes. Like Batman's still alive, even yeah. if he's on the run. I don't know. I just think all that kind of stuff is interesting to think oh, about, it is, yeah. about what we expect out of quote unquote regular people. You know? Well, yeah. And I mean, I, and think, Batman, I already but, talked about common. Like, I think Batman, Batman believes in them, but even he has his own weaknesses about. Well, he he's a symbol. So sure. he's like, he right. thinks in symbolic terms. Mm-hmm. And, okay. A line from Alfred, which I think you will, I can anticipate your perspective on, but I just, I love the way you say these kind of things. So here's Alfred's line. Perhaps the Batman believes he shouldn't be at the whim of a terrorist, no matter how the people hate him. <laughs> I feel like that line must have affected. I mean, every line from Michael Caine in this movie is effective. effective yeah. <laughs> Whatever. I know we've been recording for a while, but fuck it. This is interesting. What's your take on negotiating with terrorism and terrorists? You don't negotiate with terrorists. Okay. So uh, what would you have done if you were Batman in this movie or Gordon or someone who could fight back? Like, would you just have done it exactly the same way? What? I, that's, a, that's a hard question because there's an infinite Well, and I mean, this movie is so absurd yeah. in the sense like, well, okay, how did the Joker infiltrate a hospital to set up enough bombs to <laughs> blow it up kind of thing that's actually as a jokey aside i wanted to point out like how did the joker get all the shit done <laughs> when we weren't when he wasn't on camera it's right pretty impressive yeah, yeah it is impressive but well here in the movie batman is struggling with the idea if i remember correctly he's struggling with the idea that people of gotham want him to do x and that might be easier, but he knows if he does Y, it's a more substantial and how he feels stand up against the Joker. And one of the great narrative tensions of this movie and then the next one is the difference in the way Alfred encourages him or disencourages him, right? Because in the third movie, he's saying, you shouldn't do this. <laughs> Let someone else do it. But in this movie, he's saying, no, you're Batman. You should go you, do, you this. do this. Yeah. You know? And I don't know. I mean, it's a big question about what to do with someone hell-bent on destruction, but with so many other lives on the the line, line, like hostage-type situations. I mean, this gets into the trolley problem of (laughs) philosophy 101, but... I guess what I'd say is I have an immense amount of respect for the people who have to make those decisions, and I'm really glad that I don't have to make (laughs) them. And if I was to advise them on making them, I would say minimize the loss of life. Yeah. Period. Yeah, that, it is that funny. That needs to be your principle. Minimize the loss of life. So It's it's interesting how a lot of like real life situations kind of end up boiling down into something like a utilitarian calculus, yeah. don't well, they? Well, you can't you can't value one life over another. Well, it seems to happen. Sometimes. No, no, no. <laughs> what I mean is you can't like so you have to do it quantitatively cuz you can't make a qualitative judgment. Right. Right? <laughs> I don't know. We don't, I mean, <laughs> we get away with it on this podcast because we bring up hypotheticals. We don't have to live with the consequences nah. of no, decisions. But I feel like it's good because it orients your attention towards things, right? Yeah. Exactly. So I don't know. Maybe this would be something that 
there's been a bunch of things that we talked about in this podcast that I'm not, my mind's not made up on. I don't know the right answer or like what I would do. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe that's part of why Batman is so great. It's <laughs> <laughs> another reason. Why do you think Alfred didn't let Bruce read Rachel's letter? Hmm. Because that was a pretty impactful part for me where she wrote that she would have been with Harvey anyway, not him. Again, it's the same reason that Batman didn't let the public know that Harvey had been turned evil. It's when people try to protect others from things that will hurt them. I know, but... And I'm not saying that it's the wrong way, but you can't do that without having an air of paternalism to what's oh, going for sure. on, right? For sure. I think I think it's a, it's a flaw. Okay. Right? So you, I think do you wrong. think Alfred should have given him the letter? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, honesty. I do like, too. I think yeah, honesty the is truth. Huge. Like, yeah. oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we set out to deceive. So then, here's why I would have given Bruce the letter if I was Alfred is that my belief is that his desire to do as it were the right thing or the good thing is stronger than his desire to only be doing it because Rachel loves him. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. It uh, to me it actually would have shown a greater faith. And maybe that's maybe there's a redemptive part of it because he does tell him. Mm-hmm. Doesn't he tell him? Is it in the third movie? I can't remember. He tells him in the third movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He does he's tell him. Despairing, yes, so. that's right. So, again, it's a bias, but my bias is always towards the harder truth for a long a more long-term vitality. But I, yeah, I guess again you have to contemplate the the psyche that you're dealing with like how right. is the strength of that psyche to handle something like if all your life you'd believe that your mother loved you and it, and it turned out she really hated you not you but like just in general i know what you mean and something was built around your entire identity was built around your mother loving you like that's not something you can just throw on a person it would depend on the person's ability to process things yeah but <sighs> And I guess you're saying that's paternalistic. It's just hard to know who gets to pick that for you. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because you're right. That's true. Many people are afflicted with that type of psychological trauma. And maybe this is just another part of like the sadness of the human condition. The only people who can give you the knowledge or withhold that knowledge from you are the same as you. (laughs) Like there isn't actually a God in the sense who comes and like physically tells you that. I mean bracketing out (laughs) angel visits or whatever right right? if you come and give me a hard truth i can't just sit there and be like well he's on a higher plane than me so i have to listen you know what i mean like that's why i think that well and then then there might be ulterior motives for me coming and giving you a truth which i think adds to why i care so much about credibility and authenticity because then that allow that gives license for an injunction into your life from me right Mm -hmm. like if someone who i really respect and admire um (laughs) gives me a hard truth there's something so yeah and and actually probably think about it yeah and like yeah if you really respect somebody you'll be like Hmm. Mm-hmm. and maybe you won't do it and i might even forgive a, pater- a paternalism by them yeah in a way that i wouldn't if it was someone i didn't respect well, it might not be paternalism in that sure day, right I mean. well fuck this is also confusing i don't really know what to think about it all but you know what honestly i mean i'm sure we'll do x-men one day one of the things that stuck with me the most i think it was the first maybe it's the second x-men movie uh, charles xavier was trying to explain to students in his class that just because 
like he was trying to explain that why all the students who had all these mutant powers should still play by the same morality game that humans play by mm-hmm. when they aren't bounded physically or intellectually or whatever by them by in the same way like bringing up our crime and punishment episode like the people in professor x's classes are supermen yes. <laughs> right like yes. they are physically in some way because of the postulate of the story better than people and so that's one of the struggles of why should we play by the moral game and what was interesting, I think, my t- remembrance of that is Professor X was basically saying, like, well, it's because it's substantial. It will last over time longer. And then, I don't think he put it like this, but, like, that's how you avoid, if you, even if you're the most powerful, that's how you avoid becoming Ozymandias. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, unless your desire is to be Ozymandias. And even if someone as fucked up as the Joker isn't. Right. That's still, not, that's his still desire. not his desire. His desire is still to live with other people, but them just being as shitty as him. <laughs> Or maybe not live with them, but kill them all. But not, not before they demonstrate that. Yes. Right? right. They anyway. Have to demonstrate that. <laughs> yeah. He has his own principles. Uh, here was a line by Gordon I liked. I don't get political points for being an idealist. So he's aware of the world realities, but still tries. And I like that. I, I just something, there's something so poignant about Gordon in all three movies where he's kind of aware of the, of the milieu that he's a part of and like the corruption and the shittiness but he still does what he can do to help. You know what I mean? Like to me, this is the kind of everyday hero that you're talking about a yeah. little bit, maybe with a little more courage than the average person. Or maybe a little bit more position. He has a title. Sure. Yeah. He does have a title, but even when he's a beat cop, he still kind of has that attitude. That's true. It's a character right? thing. It yeah. goes back to character. Yeah. And I, and I, I just, I love, I don't know. Like I think, in a movie, in in this kind of movie, Gordon gets a bit of a sh- not a short shift, but a, he's like an understated hero, and I actually think he's so important to this whole. Well, the beauty of it is so world. Does Batman. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, the person who believes in Gordon the most is Batman, <laughs> yeah. hey? And from when he was oh, a kid. Oh, that's so cool. That's a good point, David. Thank you. We will hunt the Batman because he can take it. And I just wrote the note: the strong get the shit end of the stick, don't they? <laughs> And the good strong. <laughs> yeah. A couple things about Harvey Dent. This is a related line to what we talked about in David Copperfield. The good thing about the mob is that they give you second chances. Yeah, they're always... Criminals got a criminal, hey? <laughs> they're always criminal. <laughs> this is a great line of foreshadowing, one of my favorite ever in movies. You either die a hero or live yes. long enough to see yourself become a villain. And that has become a cultural like capstone. Like, totally, people right? People quote that all the time. It's, it's also like, why so mm-hmm. serious? And I mean, that's a great thing for him or Batman. But then I'd li- I would like to add a little section on here. Maybe this ties in with what I was talking about, rehabilitation. Either die hero, live long enough to see yourself become a villain, or live even a bit longer to be redeemed. <laughs> oh, there you go. I like that. I like that. So just a couple things to end off on here. Here's something a, a person says. He's a symbol, so we don't have to be scared of you. I guess that's kind of what symbols do is they ward off fear and despair, don't they? Yeah. Right? I mean, they're the the great generalizations in the <laughs> in the sky, let's say, that protect us from our from the chaos. Mob guy, you've got rules. This is to Batman. You've got rules. He's gotten all rules. And this is how he interprets how the Joker will win because doing things fair allows for an authority and a hierarchy, and the Joker doesn't play by any of those rules. And Except so the Joker does have rules. Well, but the Joker, okay, so 
Oh, shit. Probably should have talked about this with the Joker. But whatever. The Joker knows that everyone else has rules. So then he knows how they're going to behave, which is part of his predictive power. Like one, probably, I would say the thing the Joker does the best and the most accurately is predict others' behavior yes. based on what he knows about human nature and their structures and their institutions. And this ties into what I mean when I say that I think we're f- Western culture in 21st century is reticent to go approach this kind of psychology because the anarchist chaos psychology is too hard and too scary to contemplate, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. where do you throw the motivation, right? Like this is what we want to do. And I think that this is just what the mob guy is pointing out, which is it's true. overarching for the movie. Okay. Uh, and even even part of the Joker's predictive powers gets is to get everybody on the boats in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yep. But the last thing to guess talk about is at the, in that boat scene, the civilians, they, they kind of, uh, in, a, in an emergent sense, they figure out how to democratize. Like, they talk about voting. So we're way too far into this podcast to bring this up as a deep topic. But I would love to talk about sometime the human emergent impulse to democratize versus authoritize. I don't and think how, it's, a, it's an well, it's an emergent civ, uh, it's an emergent sociological reality. I don't think it's an emergent human quality. Maybe, but it'd well, that be, would be an interesting discussion. It would be a very interesting discussion. So then, the scene at the end of the movie that stuck with me so hard is that one convict on the boat who uses his badass reputation to get the detonator and then throws it out the window. And then he says to the guy, what you should, or before he throws it, he says, what you should have done a long time ago. So we assume he's going to blow up the other boat, right? But this is what Batman is fighting for, people who don't blow up the other boat. And I guess we're circling again. The main point of all of this is that how that's the person Batman is fighting for. Or no, here I'll put it to you. That's the aspect of human yes, nature. That's the the part that, of every person that Batman that is Batman for. is fighting for. That's his optimism masked, if you will, in his <laughs> weird voice and misanthropy yeah. almost. You know, that's what it's all about. And that's the that's the one thing that the Joker can't predict, hey? Because he doesn't believe in it. He doesn't believe in it. Yeah. So holy shit! Like this this entire rewatch of the dark knight floored me way more than it did when i first watched it. yeah i don't know how you felt about watching it this time but like what what's your I take think, i think a lot of my takes were the same but I, my friend kendall and i went and talked about this a lot afterwards so uh, some of the takes we've had now are obvious are, are as they always are in conversation like enlightenment mm-hmm. but uh no i i didn't find it that different the second time watching it oh okay um, yeah well, that's like kudos to Kendall then. Yeah, Thanks very Kendall much for kudos to Kendall. <laughs> like being able to So you like you think you talked about like the optimism pessimism versions like not to the depth that you and I got to okay. because we but we definitely were talking about. But I've always been a huge proponent of digging into the symbolism of right. more more than anything else, right? Like yeah. that's kind of always been my focus. Well, this is the biggest thing I felt from watching it this I think Christopher Nolan and whoever else worked on the story and the feel of this movie did something priceless for culture is that they, the best I've ever seen in a Batman movie 
showed the like just fucking unbelievable contrast between the gleeful outward pessimistic inward of the joker versus the kind of dour outward but optimistic inward of batman and beyond this movie the way that they have portrayed batman in this entire trilogy is cuz you make a great you make a good psychological point with contrast right so the contrast between how <laughs> unhappy batman seems to be or just not Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne has a sense of humor. But Batman just seems to be like depressed all the time with all the shit he has to do. But the reason is so hopeful and beautiful. So like the dark knight, the darkest hero we have is actually our white knight, right? Like yes. the light knight. The one who wants to bring more joy and happiness and meaning to the world. And bring the good out of us. The, bring the good out and of us. bring the good strength yeah. out of us. And that's just not just such, the innocent strength, but the goodness. Yeah, the, the will fight the, back. The the strength, the vital strength. Yes, right, the vital strength. And how we get that out of the Dark Knight? Yeah, <laughs> you know, like even the least likely among us can bring out the best. And I just love that motif. You know, it's a. I think the thing that I like most about this movie and about Batman in general, and I said this a little bit in Batman Begins, but I'll try to articulate it more fully here is we got to fight evil (laughs) yeah and it's there out there and whether that evil was created and and festered because of sociological forces and created evil people or whether those evil people made the choice to become those evil people is kind of irrelevant yeah because they're still there yep and they're still doing those there's like an immediacy to be dealt with and they have to be dealt with and maybe why the dark knight to me the dark knight is by not by far but the dark knight is definitely the best of the trilogy and i think it's because the joker is the best villain in pop culture and i think he's the best villain because he's the least understandable when i look at like raza ghoul his motives make sense like and and this like in batman begins scarecrow's motives are rank power or some sort of domination. And like, there isn't, it's not like I want that, but I get that impulse a little bit, right? And even Raza Ghul, like, he just is so disgusted with something that he wants to destroy it. He's so disgusted with Gotham, he wants to destroy it. I wouldn't do that, but I get that impulse a little but bit. Because with he kind of actually thinks that if he destroys it, something good can come. <laughs> yeah. Up, right. But why the Joker is so fascinating, it's really hard to relate to that deep of a nihilism that yeah. he portrays. And so. He's fascinating, and yet he's hard. Like, we just have no real context to figure out what he's doing, why he's doing it. We want to attribute it to something else, something else, something else. Because to go to the fountainhead of the despairing notion that life has no meaning, and therefore there's no actual reason to not be the Joker, is fucking terrifying. Very right? Terrifying. Yeah, we don't want to go there. And Batman pro- provides the bulwark, I think, against that, of like, well... Even if that's true, that's not the whole story. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there's there's something else going on. Yeah, and I love that. I fucking love that. So anyway, thank you for listening. This has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name's David Barker. And uh, may the dark night be with you. <laughs>